Hello everyone. This is Aditya alongside with Cable and welcome to Vocal for Political, the Polit India's very own podcast which publishes content on various political subjects. In today's episode, we have a very brilliant mind with us, a world-renowned economist, Mr. Sarthak Agrawal. From SRCC to World Bank to IMF and then IFS, what a journey it has been for Sir Sarthak. He has been an inspiration to thousands of teenagers and we are glad that he has joined us today. Welcome to the podcast, sir, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, thank you so much, Aditya, and thank you so much to your team for having me over here. It's a real pleasure to be a part of your audience today. Hello, sir. This is Cable in behalf of the Polit India, and I'll be asking you certain questions regarding the Union Budget 2021-2022. So our Honorable Finance Minister, Mrs. Nirmala Sitaraman, presented the Union Budget on 1st of February. To stick to the theoretical definition. The government budget is an annual statement showing item-wise estimates of all the receipts and payments during a given fiscal year. To get more detailed and closer look, today we will be learning what is the cause of such receipts and payments in the Union Budget 2021-2022, and what are the calculations based on which the government had to take certain steps that ultimately resulted in these receipts and payments. Simplifying, Union Budget is a financial statement that affects us all. In the short run or in the long run, it affects each and every resident of the country. But somewhere or the other, India as a country fails to show its interest in the Union Budget and other central financial decisions as compared to other countries like the US and the UK. I would like to ask you this, sir. Please explain how will the government budget influence the day-to-day lives of the general public? What is the significance of union budget from a taxpayer's point of view? Right. Um, thank you so much for this question. Um, I think what you raise is a very pertinent point about uh, there's a lot of hula every year when the budget comes out. All the news channels talk about it a lot. But for the citizens like, like you and me, um, what really changes when a budget comes out? Um, and I think there are a few things. So historically, the most important thing a budget has has told for the citizens is how much they will be taxed. And that is constant around the world because, I mean, the most important proposals are actually in the part B of the budget where the finance minister speaks about what she's doing regarding the income taxes, regarding custom duties and all these kinds of things. Um, So that's something that directly affects us. Um, Historically, I mean, before 1991, the government had a much bigger role in the economy which basically meant that tax rates on a variety of things were very high. So on in every budget, people were looking forward to exemptions, people were looking forward to some rebates, some concessions, uh, and they did happen at times. Uh, but by and large, because the tax rates have come down over the years, um, that particular part has become um, slightly less important. Um, and after the GST reform of 2017, um, a lot of the indirect taxes have also kind of passed away from the center and they are in the remit of the states and the center in the GST council. So even that importance has declined. But that being said, besides taxes, the other crucial thing the government does is government spending. Um, Government spending is very important for a lot of us because ultimately our incomes are determined by what the government does. So if the government increases its spending, 
that money flows into the pockets of somebody and then that money gets recirculated and so on and so forth. So basically what we call a fiscal policy is essentially the government spending money and, and boosting and boosting the economy. And, and one final thing is that it also gives a roadmap for the country in the future. Uh, the finance minister talks about what hmm. are her long-term proposals, right. what are her policy proposals. The they don't get implemented in the budget, of course, but they give an idea of what is to come. This was one of the most anticipated budget in recent times, with many of it keen to understand how the government plans to repair, restore and rebuild India's finances, which had faced much disruptions caused by the coronavirus pandemic. From a common man's perspective, there was expectation that there would be some sort of COVID cis or wealth tax or some provision that will transfer wealth from individual's pocket to the government's office. In a major relief to all, uh, unlike previous budgets, there were no major changes in the taxes this year. Instead, what we got is a budget built around health, hope and growth that doesn't harm anyone and ensures that almost all major sectors of the economy had something good to take home. What do you feel about the budget overall? And uh, what do you think? How are we coping up with the financial setback? So um, to speak about the first thing, as you said, the government didn't impose any new taxes, um, especially the COVID says, which I think was a good decision because right now what we need is money to be in people's hands so that they can spend um, and and rather than the government taking too much of it, because even the government does spend, but ultimately India is a is a primarily consumption driven economy, which means that most of the income in our country is coming from the fact that people like you and I go out to shop and go out to buy things. Um, so that was the good thing. Um, the government increased its fiscal deficit, which basically means how much it is borrowing from other sources um, to spend. Uh, which shows that it has shown that keenness to deliver some kind of injection into the economy. Um, at the same time, when you look at the long-term dimensions, um, I, I, I honestly feel that the budget should not just be restricted to what it did for the COVID um, hurt economy, because that is obviously a big challenge. But at the same time, um, there are strong indications that India is kind of emerging back. Our GDP growth is projected to be positive in this quarter. And, and there's a great chance that ultimately in, a, in, a two, in two or three years, we'll regain our growth momentum. So the challenge right now is how, how to kind of go towards that $5 trillion economy mark, how to basically grow very fast so that we can reduce poverty and all. And in this context, I see this mm, budget right. kind of taking some strong steps to lead into that direction. As we all predicted, the big mover in the budget was health, with the finance minister allocating 2,83,000 crores to the healthcare and wellness plans. This is 137% of the last year's spending on healthcare. Out of this, only 35,000 crores, that is almost 12%, have been allocated for the COVID-19 vaccination with the commitment of putting additional funds if required. Can we say that these figures suggest that our government has finally realized the importance of health in the process of formation of human capital? How do you see these figures and what are the scopes of improvements you feel are needed to develop this crucial sector of health and wellness? Um, 
I mean, one thing to realize at the outset is that the government has been, I mean, your podcast is called Polit India. Um, so yeah. obviously, I mean, there's, I mean, to throw in a political remark, the government has been very kind of smart in putting together various sectors like drinking water, sanitation, and all yeah. those kinds of things uh, into a broad category called health and wellness, which doesn't really mean that all of that is going towards health. Um, so to give you one example, I mean, one of the prime minister's pet scheme uh, called the Jal Jeevan Mission is something mm -hmm. that will be launched from this year onwards. And yeah. the budget spent is for five or six years. And, and it's a very ambitious scheme to have a tap water connection to every rural household uh, by 2024. And that obviously cost a lot of money. Um, if you look at just health and, um, and, and my data is coming from the from the budget at a glance document that is released alongside the budget speech, um, you would see that in 2017-18, the government was spending roughly around 2.5% of its total expenditure on health, but it has shown a slightly downward trend, so much so that in 2020-21, it is just 2.4%, and in 21-22, which is the budgetary estimates, it is 2.14%. So my point is, if you leave aside um, all the wellness, all the drinking water, all the sanitation uh, kind of things and leave aside the COVID vaccination, which is obviously a one-time measure, um, then there is, there is not that kind of huge boost to health that we would have liked to have seen, especially in the areas of primary health, because that's something India lags very much on. I mean, recently um, there was this kind of new survey which shows that our children are are not getting any taller. The stunting levels, which basically shows acute levels of malnutrition, have actually increased in many states. Um, so the problems in the health sector are manifold, and it is not fair to expect one budget to correct all of them. Um, at the mm. same time, I think all these sectors are also interconnected. I mean, drinking water is interconnected to health. So if, if there is tap water in every rural household, then obviously health and living standards improve. But I think in the long term, we'll have to see much more action, especially from the states, because I mean, again, to talk about the political angle, in India's constitutional scheme, health is a state subject, which means the states do much of the heavy lifting as far as health expenditures are concerned. So we'll have to see how the overall allocations stand up and what the trend is implied in the next four or five years once the vaccination and once the other things are past us. It is true that the vaccination is a one-time expense, and we just spoke about that. But at the same time, what was really impressive in the budget was that the government had allocated such a huge figure, which shows that it is ready to kind of provide the vaccine free of cost for a large number of people. And it's important to stress on what that means. It means that the vaccination might arrive sooner at our doors than what we think. More people might be able to afford that. It is absolutely essential because the vaccine not only protects ourselves, it also protects our neighbors, it protects people we interact with. And if that happens fast, uh, which will, it probably will, because the vaccine is, is, is free for a lot of people, then the growth will return faster as well. So, I mean, that's the thing with economics. All these things are very interlinked. Um, it's hard to say that one thing doesn't affect the other at all. But yes, I mean, it is a one-time expense in that way, but it will also lead to yes, growth, growth. Uh, because the government's committed to providing it free to a large number of people. Mm. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can yeah. go ahead with what you were saying. The finance minister reinforced the government's commitment towards building an Atmanirbhar Bharat. This comes in the form of an expansional budget aimed at boosting capital expenditure, increasing spending 
and providing greater employment opportunities. The government focuses on introducing new infra plans this year. Like every year, the government has allocated over 1000 crores in building national highways in the states like Tamil Nadu, West Bengal, Kerala and Assam. Now three questions. With all these increase in expenditure, how do you think the inflation rate is being managed in the country? With 2020 being affected due to COVID-19 pandemic, is the figure of 1000 crores justified by the need to build national highways or we could have allocated a part of this into health or education? And even if we are spending good amount of funds to build national highways, can we expect them to be built only in the states in which elections are expected or we could have allocated funds where actually national highways are required? Um, so, um, to talk about inflation first, so I mean, just to kind of quickly uh, go over how, how this mechanism works. So, what you're basically saying is with the government spending all this money and all this money ultimately ending into the hands of people like you and me, um, when we go out to spend, um, we are basically increasing the demand for our products, which might lead to faster price growth, faster increases in prices, which is inflation, especially if new supply doesn't catch up. I mean, all that is simple. But the question right now is that in a pandemic struck economy, um, how realistic is the possibility of inflation? If you ask me, I don't think it's very likely, um, simply because A, um, Inflation in India has historically been much more due to um, crop failures, much more due to monsoon failures, uh, mm. external sh external shocks like oil price shocks, um, and, and less due to this kind of demand overheating channel, which is what I just described. Uh, yeah. Mainly because, I mean, India is, is, a, is a demand-constrained economy in a lot of ways. So when the government spends money in this manner, especially in capital investment, it also leads to generation of new assets. It leads businesses to invest. It leads businesses to spend uh, more on generating new capacity. And all that means is that that increased demand is also balanced to a certain extent by increased supply, which keeps inflation muted in the short run. So that is so. So I think the finance minister wasn't very concerned about this particular channel. Now talking about the next question about. Uh, the 1000 crore outlay on national highways. Uh, I'm yes. not sure what exactly the figures are, but I mean, what I am kind of looking at is the big capital expenditure budget, which is roughly 2.5% of GDP this year, which is a historically very high figure. I mean, even if you look at 2019-20, it was only 1.65% of GDP, which shows that it's a, it's a major increase. It's a 150% increase mm. in this mm. ratio over just a couple of years. So all that money is definitely kind of going to be pumped into the economy. Um, and that is part of the 113 lakh crore NIP, which is the National Infrastructure Pipeline, uh, yeah. a major pet project of this government, which means we'll see a major infrastructural overhaul throughout the country. And it is extremely important because businesses and consumers can kind of move more freely, the goods can move better, and all that leads to lower costs and ultimately uh, faster growth of the Indian economy. And coming to your final question about uh, elections and the political economy aspect of it, I mean, that is part and parcel of democracy, right? I mean, one reason democracy works is the political accountability channel, which is that when elections come, um, politicians are, are uh, 
compelled to do more. They're compelled to spend money. They're compelled to generate outcomes for the people. So I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Um, elections are in, are in many important states this year, and uh, they could have been in some other states, and similar kind of uh, bounties could have been thrown at those states. And I think that, that, that happens with every government, every budget. And I, I don't think that's a particularly unhealthy part of our democracy. Uh, because what we care about is outcomes. What we care about is government wisely spending the money. And there's no evidence to say that the money that is thrown mm -hmm. at election time right. is necessarily towards bad causes. So I'm a bit less concerned about that. Now coming towards the investment perspective, a public sector bank city capitalization of 20,000 crores is proposed for this financial year. Now, is this amount adequate to satisfy the massive needs of a public sector's banks? Also, not to forget the increase in FDI from the previous 49% to now 74% in the insurance companies, with some safeguard seems to be a promising change. Now, this sends out the message that India is keen to invite foreign participation in other industries as well. What do you think about these steps? Um, those are very good questions. I mean, coming to the insurance bit, first of all, um, yeah. many industry experts have expressed the need for a higher ceiling of foreign investment in the insurance sector, because mm -hmm. what they feel is that the 49% limit uh, doesn't give them the strategic control that yeah. many international insurance giants would like in doing business in India. And one thing you've got to remember is that insurance penetration is abysmally low in India. For a country which is aspiring to be a five trillion dollar economy, is already a three trillion is already a three trillion dollar economy. Um, we basically can't go ahead without the modern day uh, necessity of having a good insurance sector in life insurance, in health insurance, uh, mm -hmm. automobile insurance, and that's something I think which was majorly required. And I'm glad the government finally took this major step. Um, coming to uh, what you said about bank recapitalization. I think that is the biggest problem facing the Indian economy right now. Mm -hmm. uh, credit, credit growth in the last financial year was around 6%, which means that banks are lending money slower and slower uh, every passing day, which basically is a death knell for our businesses because, as you are aware, corporates and industries and businesses thrive yeah. on borrowed money. They take that money, they generate more output of it, and then they repay that money and, and generate wealth for the country. But if banks are not lending um, credit, then that basically means these businesses have no way to go for funds. Um, I mean, the stock market and all those things are also kind of becoming more important. But the fact is that India is still a predominantly bank-run economy, which means that most of the money that businesses need, they come from the banks that depositors put their money in. Now, why is this happening? It is happening simply because the banks are too risk averse, which means that after a spat of NPAs, which is mm. the loans they made, but, but they couldn't yeah. recover or the loans that yeah. are unlikely to be recovered. Um, mm. So banks are thinking that, okay, let's conserve our cash, let's conserve our capital rather than investing in more risky projects. Now, it might be prudent for a particular bank to do that, but when the entire banking sector goes into that kind of quagmire, then mm. you have a dearth of credit. Um, it is in this context that the government thought that if we recapitalize state-owned banks, which means that all those NPAs that are stashed somewhere over there, um, the banks will get the money to account for those NPAs. They can keep that money aside and then generate 
kind of new credit with the depositors money yeah. they already have yeah now yeah, the 20000 crore figure is not very high if you look at the past 10 years then the mm. government has roughly spent this much amount uh, almost every year and the total kind of spending is around 4 lakh crores on bank recapital uh, recapitalization in the past decade and most people think that is insufficient um i tend to agree with them but there's also a point about two other schemes in this budget for the banks one is the proposal for a bad bank which means that all the npas will be clubbed together in one place like you basically sweep the dirt away in one corner and have the other room being clean uh, that might help and the other thing is about the privatization of public sector banks because they have higher npas they are worse run and there were number of other problems um that can be solved i mean i'm not saying they will be solved or it's a, it's a panacea but i think privatization is something that will help improve the governance of some of these banks as well a bill is to be introduced to set up a developmental financial institution now this is not the first time this bill is to be introduced what are the chances of this bill getting passed this year and uh, what kind of change will we see in the financing of those ongoing projects due to this uh, developmental financial institution um you know the dfi is not a new concept for india all yeah. these icicis and all these kind of hgfcs and stuff in back in the in the heyday of the 70s and 80s i mean mm-hmm. the dfis were all the rage everybody thought that if you could kind of channel credit um through a dedicated institution to sectors that need developmental uh, outlay then that would be i mean that would really kick start a development that would kick start a growth story as things happen i mean it was partly successful but also it received less and less focus as time went by because of yeah. a lot of problems um mm. so i i think i think the dfi is not a it's not something that is coming out of the blue it has been talked about for a lot of years but again i would i would stress on the fact that um I mean there is a lot of debate on whether the government is competent enough to identify which sectors will grow and where to invest the money that is going mm. into the DFIs um mm. so that remains to be seen how well that money will be spent as far as the bill is concerned i mean the government has a majority uh, in the lok sabha so the bill will be passed uh, and and even the rajya sabha the bill might be passed so um i mean i would i would be looking forward to this institution i would be looking forward to how the governance of this new dfi is different from everything that preceded it and whether on the basis of that difference yes. we can say yes. anything okay. about whether this will be more successful than its predecessors there are many schemes that the government keeps introducing with the aim of increasing productivity or welfare my question is how do you see these yojanas and uh, of the allocated funds how effectively is the funds utilized or channelized in the economy what i think what what you're referring to is the fact that some important schemes have actually kind of not seen the kind of outlay that they might have merited i mean the ayushman bharat scheme is an extremely ambitious endeavor um, guaranteeing kind of health insurance to 50 lakh uh, 50 crore poor individuals but i think the outlays do not really stack uh, with with the ambition and another thing is the gramin sadak yojana i mean that that has been a very important tool in reducing poverty and creating assets in our rural areas but this year surprisingly the allocation has actually gone down um i mean i i i do not know why that happened obviously there were kind of 
like the strongest revenue constraints you would have seen in the past many decades. But I think it is schemes like these that should have seen greater expenditure. The government has done very well to compress uh, food and fertilizer subsidies, and it has also come clean on the expenditure it is incurring. Uh, and in the future, we might expect a, a further kind of reduction in those subsidies and a further investment in the schemes you and I care about. Yeah. Um, so yes, that remains to be seen. But definitely, I mean, funding is a concern, especially in a pandemic year like this one, where tax revenues have basically dried up. Our fiscal deficit is going almost to 10% of GDP, which are, which are unheard figures. So yeah. I don't blame the finance minister for for not pumping in as much money in every scheme okay. as we would okay. have liked. Okay. But yes, yeah. there are some schemes where more could have been done. Moving towards balancing the budget, the country's fiscal deficit is estimated at 9.5% of the GDP for financial year 2020-2021. This is understandable in a year when the revenues are down and the global pandemic occurred. But in the current financial year, the government expects fiscal deficit around 6.8% of the GDP, with the projection of keeping it under 5% during the tenure of the next two years. To meet the deficit, the government is planning to borrow 12 lakh crore and at the same time monetization of its assets with the proposed strategic divestment of public sector banks and one general insurance company. This is something new and unusual. What is your take on this? Yes, I mean, this investment has been an important kind of feature of this budget. If you look at 2021-2022, then the government is basically hoping to mop up over 1.75 lakh roads from this investment, which is the second highest figure that has ever been budgeted uh, just behind what happened last year. But unfortunately, out of the 2.1 lakh crore that was budgeted, only, only 32,000 crores actually came in. Um, so that shows that, I mean, this investment hasn't been as successful recently as the government would have liked, but that hasn't stopped it from aiming very high. Um, in the insurance sector, I mean, yes, there have been reforms. There have been there, there is a big proposal for uh, for a IPO, or, yeah. which is an initial public offering for the LIC, where its shares will yeah. be released to the general public. Um, so that is something that is that is that would that would raise a lot of money. Um, as far as this investment in general is concerned, I mean, in a pandemic year, it might be a bit hard to get the kind of valuations that the government would have liked to. And there's also there's always the kind of politically messy problem of, of there being a lot of debates around cronyism, if the assets mm -hmm. are undervalued and, and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the government has to be extremely bold in taking these steps in this year. And I think it has expressed a strong intention for asset monetization and all those kinds of things. But yes, I mean, it remains to be seen how successful they are, how many bidders you get. One positive kind of thing has been Air India. Uh, Air India's disinvestment has finally picked up yeah. wheels. Uh, companies are going on, are trying to uh, buy a national carrier. Um, let's see how that goes. But yes, I mean, disinvestment is, yeah. is a flagship. From the budget to the deficit. To finance the deficit, the government is set to introduce LIC's IPO. The government is interested in selling Air India and BPCL with the sale of non-core assets like surplus land. With all summed up, the government has a divestment target of 1.75 lakh crore for the financial year 22. The Niti Aayog is said to be working on some more public sector undertakings that is expected to be up for divestment. So, should selling of assets be a concern? And is selling of assets to private players, that is privatization, 
a slight lean towards the capitalist economy what are your views on this and that is a very interesting question kevil um i mean my take is the fact that india has despite i mean no politician will tell you no kind of um legal document will tell you but india has been a capitalistic economy for much of its for much of its post independent history i mean we have flirted with socialism but i mean i mean i think one i think gurcharan das was one who said that india has always had a structure where it is socialism for the poor and capitalism for the rich yeah. Uh, yeah. which is which is which is basically i mean what we've had so i think we have we've kind of becoming we are kind of becoming more accepted to the idea that capitalism is what will lead to faster growth at the same time we should have a strong kind of safety net for people who are left behind as far as the immediate question about this investment is concerned i mean yes uh, if you look at it from an individual's perspective we sell our assets when we are basically uh, we have nothing else to do i mean we have loans yeah. coming up and we basically have to kind of uh, do all those kinds of things but i mean the government is slightly different because ultimately the government works in the interest of the people of the india or people of india or at least we hope that it does so it doesn't care about its own assets kind of going down as long as those assets are better employed for the welfare of the country so to give yeah. you an example if you have 100 rupees and the government says that it can use that 100 rupees worth of investment to generate 105 rupees and somebody else say you go to the government and say that you give me that 100 rupees and i'll generate 110 i yeah. mean if it was you in an individual capacity if it was a family they might have refused because they care for that 105 for themselves but the government is keen on maximizing the country's gdp so it says mm. okay fine take those assets generate more money out of them and it will add to the country's gdp it will add to our employment and it will add to all the things we care about which is pretty much what they are doing with air india and i mean it's not rocket science the government doesn't have as good incentives as the private sector to operate businesses i mean the pm said the other day that the government has no business being in business which is yeah. what was the kind of the major stream of thought in the 1980s when margaret thatcher in the uk and ronald reagan in the us were unleashing this privatization gamut um mm. but but yes i mean in this modern day economy and given the failures of the indian bureaucratic state in administering a lot of these businesses properly i think it is it is beyond time that these businesses pass hand to those who can run them a lot more effectively um and i think i think the center needs to be complimented for taking this step at the same time as i said before um there will be a lot of debate around whether these assets have been priced properly so yeah the thing to watch out now would be how it manages that political fallout how it manages that political problem but mm. that is for another day yeah that was a great insight proceeding towards the revenue the budget shows a remarkable continuity with its tax code which was a breath of fresh air as compared to the previous budgets no extra capital gains no extra wealth tax nothing This is very much liked by the taxpayers and that is one of the reasons why this budget is considered better than the yester ones. In fact, the government has taken some improvement measures in the tax reforms declared a few years back. Extension of Vivid Vishwa scheme, reduction in tax assessment, lower litigation with taxpayers and increase in tax audit from 5 crore to 10 crore for like small scale industries. Uh, in addition to this uh, the elderly over 75 years of age don't have to go through the tedious process of filing it returns 
the banks uh, will uh, work for them. So some reliefs to NRIs, some reliefs to shareholders on dividend income, some assistance to foreign investors to attract more of FDIs in providing tax holiday and affordable housing projects until 31st March 22. Now this is a great plan, this is a great, great set of scheme. But how hard will this impact the tax revenue and how happy would a common man be after experiencing these tax holidays? Um, I mean, as you rightly pointed out, this budget didn't increase a lot of taxes. It didn't play around with a lot of tax schemes. I mean, there are minor things that you pointed out. They are mainly tax administration points, which, which, which might mean that life of a taxpayer might get a bit easier. But yeah. by and large, they are not changing the regime to a huge extent. I mean, last year was a very important year for the, uh, for the budget as far as taxes are concerned, because mm-hmm. this new, new simplified scheme was released where you basically um, could benefit from a, from a different kind of uh, tax lab if you yeah. let go of all the exemptions. And to anybody who knows anything about the Indian tax system, one thing that stands out is the fact that our system is riddled with exemptions and caveats and a range of things which complicate yeah. things for everybody, for, for us and for the government as well. So yeah. last year was a bold step uh, in trying to simplify this regime by offering an option for taxpayers to convert to that regime. Now, yeah. the take-up has been very low from what government records suggest. Not a lot of people have preferred to take up the simplified regime because they've yeah. been gaining, gaining from all the exemptions that have been offered. And mm. for the same reason, there was some expectation that, that, that the new kind of regime would be made even more attractive but that hasn't happened this year because the government, as you said, it is fearful of losing more revenues. Uh, mm. So it doesn't want to offer, offer a lot to the taxpayers. Um, but at the same time, I think, I think uh, there was some rumor of there being a surcharge on the super rich and taking our maximum tax rate above 42.7%, which is anyway very high. So I think it was good to see that the government didn't focus on that route. And, and I simply say this because, I mean, all of the economic evidence suggests that super high tax rates lead to more evasion, they lead to less collection, and they basically hurt economic incentives. And a much uh-huh. better route is to have lower tax rates, simpler tax system, administ- administer it properly, and get more revenues. Okay, all right. It's a pretty good period to recover from the financial losses. Please tell us. How to utilize this period of holiday the fullest as a common investor or an entrepreneur? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> this might have been the most kind of popular question from whatever we've discussed so far, but I'm afraid I, I know the least about it because, I mean, I do not have a very good understanding of how the investment in the finance sector works, which is, which is very different from the economic sector, as, you, as you're well aware. Uh, yeah. But yes, I mean, I mean, investors have gained a lot of money in the past because when the markets tanked back in March, and since mm-hmm. then they've basically kind of grown very fast to Sensex has crossed fifty thousand. Uh, yeah. The entire global money, which is spurred by loose monetary policy in the U.S. and the West, all that money yeah. is coming back to India. It is mm-hmm. raising our stock market. It is pumping in money. So I think yeah. there is there, there is there is a lot of money to be made. But how exactly that will happen is something I can't say much about fine no issues (laughs) okay i want to ask you about this one minute increase in sales that is observed is under the agricultural sector price of goods such as cotton is expected to rise due to this 
do you think that this kind of increased transfer income is expected from the appropriate income group or there is some other hidden objective that is uh, to be fulfilled with this also explain what is the state center conflict when it comes to this right i mean i'm glad you raised that question because i think that is one of the uh, I mean, less attractive portions of this budget, yeah. and I'll tell I'll tell you why. I mean, it is not because it will raise uh, the prices for our consumers, or or it is kind of mistargeted. Because what the budget is basically doing is that they are replacing a tax, which is basically a custom duty or an excise duty, with a cess. Now, what that means is a cess is nothing. <clears throat> sorry, a cess is not very different from a tax, except that it is a temporary. Uh, temp- it's a, it's a temporary imposition. and it is yeah. meant for a certain purpose so for instance mm. in this case it is the agricultural infrastructural cess which means mm. that all that money that is collected will go into a specified pool and can only be spent on this item now mm. with the ongoing farm crisis in the country and the farm protests in the country i mean i'm not surprised that the government did that because it has to mm. show an intention that it is doing something uh, for the agricultural sector um, mm. even explicitly but i mean the problem over here simply is that cesses are something that are not shared with the states i mean in india's kind of uh, fiscal paradigm the center collects a lot of the revenues but states do most of the spending so there is an uh, there's an animal called the finance commission which comes in every 5 years and it gets yeah. it gives certain revenue from the center to the states now mm. only certain taxes are shared with the states and there is a specified proportion of 41 or 42% of what the center corrects that goes to the states but importantly the cesses are not shared but the import duties and the excise duties are so what the center has basically done is to not hurt the consumers uh, because the taxes stay the same for us but it has tried to pickpocket the states from taking all that money that was going to them and which will now stay with the center itself so in a way i mean i don't think this aligns very well with the new kind of regime of cooperative federalism and fiscal federalism that the government has has been at pains to uh, produce over the past few years but i mean many state chief ministers have already criticized this move because they say this will cause tens of thousands of crores of yeah. revenue losses for them um, yeah i think this is something that needs very urgent and vigorous debate on whether mm. india needs this kind of cesses and surcharges that are basically i mean they just worsen the relations between the center and states when actually they both mm-hmm. they both must be playing together for the economy to function properly yeah okay understood it's very interesting how the customs related to products like mobile phones and automobile parts will now apply 2.5% to 15% more than what it was till now only because the sector has never disappointed the indian finances the economy is seen to be putting additional load on this one contributing sector every now and then how much of the load will this sector bear and do you think pushing limits for such a contributing sector will bring all good to the economy the focus right here is the fact that india should emerge as a viable manufacturing destination for things like mobile phones automobiles electronics so the yeah. government keeps increasing in import duties year after year so that basically our domestic manufacturers become more competitive in the global market mm. 
now one one kind of pernicious trend over here is the fact that they also raise duties on a lot of automobile parts now mm-hmm. what historical evidence suggests is that countries like india they import these parts from around the world and they assemble yeah. them over here and then they export them to the to the world basically because yeah. our the, the assembly state is much cheaper to do in india now mm-hmm. if you raise the cost of the imports of automobile parts then this is basically raising the cost of the raw material which ultimately exactly. means higher prices and which exactly. means lower lower demand for a product now that is a yeah. problematic trend but as far as the mobile phone industry is concerned i think something very interesting is happening if you look mm-hmm. at smartphone manufacturing and you compare that with what it was 6 years earlier india was basically importing above 70 or 80% of its smartphones from around the world and that figure has dramatically collapsed most of our smartphones are being produced right here in india right now mm-hmm. and i think some of that has to do with the fact that these kind of custom duties and these protections have actually worked yeah. for our domestic industry yeah. now i was yeah. just reading I, i was just reading this uh, this morning that foxconn which is a major kind of producer of apple and i of mm. and, and iphones has mm. agreed to produce amazon's i think um, fire sticks in india uh, mm-hmm. starting this year which which again mm-hmm. will be a major investment it will generate yeah. crores of uh, output and and millions of jobs um, mm-hmm. so I, i i i mean most economists if you ask them they would be very kind of reluctant to endorse any custom duties because they feel that international trade ultimately helps everybody uh, which it does but i think in cases like india's uh, mm. i i mean most custom duties tend to go wrong because they tend to favor sectors that are politically connected but might not be economically efficient which was what happened before 1991 but i think yeah. this positive sign of mobile phone manufacturing might give a fillip to this sector and suggest that okay custom duties which are low which are not very high but uh, which are well directed can ultimately contribute to our manufacturing hmm nice with the idea of sustainable development some of the developing countries have realized the importance of renewable energy some exports have said that the key to sustain the rate of growth is to invest in non replenishing sources of energy and that stands true cause the cost per unit reduces in the longer run when the goods are produced under the renewable energy now india has never shown signs of getting into the lane of renewable energy in fact in the budget custom duty on the solar inverters has been increased from 5% to 20% uh, while it has been increased from 5% to 15% on solar lanterns please explain how will this increased duty impact atmanirbhar project in the longer run and how is this period the one ongoing to start investing in the sources of renewable energy to achieve efficiency on a national level in a longer run yeah um i mean climate change is one of the challenges of our time and every government in the world is doing something or the other to address it um i think india is also taking a lot of firm steps if you look at what india has promised to the uh, united nations as part of the paris agreement of 2015 it has said that over 40% of its electric energy will be derived from renewable sources by 2030 uh, and and it has it has gone some distance towards achieving that um, i mean we are kind of installing some of the biggest solar and wind wind power plants of the world um, and this government in particular has kind of taken a lot of steps to increase solar uh, capacity in the country 
Now, what you the point you mentioned is very important about raising solar uh, about raising tariffs on on solar products, and I think that is less to do with uh, kind of disincentivizing consumers to purchase them, and more mm -hmm. to encourage our domestic producers to kind of manufacture more of solar equipment. Because I mean, mm -hmm. one problem we found out in the pandemic was that over eighty or eighty five percent of our solar, I mean, if you let's let's take um, solar cell. Much of the material that goes into making a solar cell is coming from a single source, and there's yeah. no price for guessing that that's China. Um, yeah. China is basically dominating the world supply of of lithium and of of all these kind of photovoltaic wafers, which are which are crucial ingredients in manufacturing solar equipment. So I think this, I think the government is it wants to establish itself, establish India. As as a center for manufacturing of solar products, um, or at least be self uh, self sufficient, because I mean, energy is going to be a major um, strategic sector in the in the years to come if it hasn't become already. And we don't want to be overly reliant, uh, as we have been in the case of oil and gas, um, in the case of Middle East and OPEC countries. So I think there are some positive steps over there. But given the huge kind of asymmetry and the huge uh, China in these supply chains, I am not too sure how successful it will be in the near term to manufacture yeah. all these things in India. Okay, okay. Summing all up, the total estimate of all relief measures provided in the budget and declared by the RBI sums up over twenty-seven lakh crore, that is thirteen percent of the Indian GDP. From the investing perspective, the stock market has taken quite well to this budget. The Nifty on the day uh, on which the budget was declared closed over fourteen thousand two hundred points. That states how frightened the general public was, more than how good the budget is. And the markets are observed doing quite well since the lockdown began. The government aimed at uh, increasing investors' interest so that the financial setback caused due to COVID nineteen could be resolved as fast as possible. and not just in the total in amount invested uh, the total amount of investors has also witnessed a huge growth since the last year what do you think how will the market behave corresponding to this new investors interests in the financial year 22 especially after such an investors friendly budget um yes i mean uh, markets is something that is always hard to predict um Uh, one thing, I mean, uh, ace investor Rakesh Chunjunwala said a few days ago, which was very interesting, was that economists are always predicting stuff about the stock market, but I'm surprised why aren't they so rich if they're so good at it? Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think that's a fair point. Uh, most of us don't know much about how the market behaves, um, but as I said before, I mean, money has been pumping into the economy. Um, relief measures have been taken in a in a huge amount. Um, there's no denying that. Um, but yes i mean when it comes to the stock market when it comes to the kind of all these uh, equity markets it is a different animal and and i i yeah. I, i don't know, i really don't know how <laughs> uh, what will happen to them <laughs> now moving forward towards the hotter topics right now the global markets are flooded with adventurous investors and crypto has emerged as a massively growing currency Despite of having its high volatile nature, the digital currencies never fail to attract young investors. 
the inexperience in individual investors have been one of the major causes why the value of currency keeps fluctuating so much. For the first time in history, the Indian budget was presented not in the physical form but in a digital form. I mean, you know that the finance minister read the budget file from the tablet, right? So if we are implementing the digital file readers, why cannot we expect digital currencies to enter the Indian economy? Just for the hindsight, please tell us how would the economy react if trading digital currencies would be allowed or preferred by the government for the day-to-day transactions. I mean, how critical would those consequences be? Um, that's a great uh, that's a great point. I mean, one thing to realize is that in the past five or six years, India has become enormously more digitized um, than something we ever expected. And that's something that is not lost on any of us when we transact in our daily lives. As far as cryptocurrencies are concerned, I mean, um, one kind of thing which was that in 2017 or 2018, the Reserve Bank of India actually banned all cryptocurrencies in India, um, yeah. which was reversed by the Supreme Court and now the government is putting in a law that again will ban these and give them legislative backing. Um, I mean, as you pointed out, there is a huge fluctuation in the prices of Bitcoin, for instance. It's like $50,000 or something uh, per Bitcoin right now, which makes it a horrible currency. I mean, one thing we study in our economics textbooks is that currency price shouldn't fluctuate that much. Um, And that is happening because of, I mean, a number of reasons, but it's also in its uh, immaturity, it's in its early stage. So you'd expect these kind of price uh, changes. Now, as far as digital currencies are concerned, the government is planning to launch a central bank digital currency, uh, which is basically going to be uh, the sole digital currency in the in, in the country that will be issued by the by the Reserve Bank of India, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a similar route taken by other countries as well, like China. The United States is also considering um, rolling out these measures. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they are planning to enter this market, but in a very regulated form, because I mean, Bitcoins and all, they are raising a host of issues about uh, terrorism and, and these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Finally, you spoke about the impact on trade. Uh, I definitely agree with you that trade will become a lot more easier. It will become swifter because you've basically kind of removed much of the uncertainty that kind of surrounds um, trading, say, for instance, from India to the United States because of dollar mm-hmm. changes, because of government regulations. That's a, I mean, that's a positive point, but we also have to think about what all could go wrong, which I think is what the government is doing right. Okay. Nextly, I want to ask you about this. What do you feel about the concept of universal basic income? And is it suitable for a country like India during this pandemic, especially? Um it is a very interesting concept because uh, the economic survey a couple of years or more ago, it yeah. had a very detailed chapter on this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's a good idea, but the only problem over here is the fact that um, uh, it, is going to, it is going to cost a lot of money. I mean, some people think it yeah. will cost around 4 to 5% of GDP, uh, yeah. a basic universal basic income, which is, yeah. which, is, which is far too much for a country of which is country as revenue constrained as India. And the other Mm -hmm. thing is also more basic. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk about jam and all the digital transfers and all. But in the pandemic, we found out the government didn't have any idea about the 8 lakh, uh, about about the 8 crore migrant workers. And that is why, Mm -hmm. I mean, they they, they didn't have their data, which is why they couldn't transfer money to them. I mean, Mm -hmm. you need a strong database. Even Jandhan accounts are only what, I think 400 million right now. 
and india is 1.3 billion people so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these mundane work needs to be done for the universal basic income to be targeted properly yeah. but yeah. yes i mean in times to come i think it's a visionary idea which will which we which we will see something mm. Mm-hmm. more about the budget what are the major takeaways of this budget um yeah i mean let, let me let me take a let me take a kind of few stabs at this so i mean yeah. one of the biggest kind of pro is the is the growth focus of the budget which is 2.5% of gdp and capital expenditure if it gets implemented then that will be a great thing that is one of the main positive things the second thing is the fact that um, no new taxes that's always good uh, especially in a pandemic uh, the third thing is that the government has shown some willingness to borrow and to finance the economy i mean fiscal deficit will only come down to 4.5% by 24 25 uh, mm-hmm. or even later which shows that mm-hmm. it is it is it is willing to kind of buy its time um yeah. as far as the cons are concerned i mean i would have liked to see a bit more on agricultural investment that is a sector that has suffered a bit in recent years and and same with this year's budget as well i mean subsidies yeah. and all those transfers tend to gain more importance but ultimately it is public investment in agriculture that yeah. will that will really kind of push up the fortunes of of this particular sector um mm-hmm. as i said i mean the the reliance on cesses wasn't very good as far as cooperative federalism is concerned and that's something that could have been avoided and one final kind of positive point which is uh i mean which is kind of bit more mundane but it's very important for the country i mean the the finance minister has come clean in reporting food and fertilizer subsidies this year so the fiscal deficit that is reported is very much closer to what is actually incurred by the government which wasn't the case in previous years when you had all these kind of expenditures which were incurred but they weren't shown on the budget and they were kind of lying somewhere or the other but now all of that is coming together and which shows that um, transparency in budget reporting is what will be the norm in the future and i think that is a very good structural long term move for the country okay so with this we come towards an end of this podcast thank you so much for coming sir thank you so much for giving such great insights you always been an inspiration and you always will be thank you so much kevin it it was a, it was a delight to be speaking to you um yeah. you exaggerate a lot <laughs> with everything you just yeah. said but I, but i mean I, i absolutely love being a part of you and and like kudos to all the exciting work you're doing uh, and all the best yeah yeah thank you thank you